0: Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSE podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation.
1: The question we need to get courts to think about are what are the most important design steps that they can take. The fact that this external infrastructure issue is becoming a court issue is giving us a a once-in-a-generation opportunity to really change the power imbalances within the system.
0: Hello and welcome to Talk Justice. I'm your host, Jason Taché. As more legal aid and court services go digital, there is a concern that people without access to technology and high-speed internet will be left behind. This division between the haves and the have-nots is commonly referred to as the digital divide, which is what I will be speaking about with our three guests today. I'm joined by Catherine Altnader, the Consulting Senior Strategic Advisor at the Self-Represented Litigation Network, Leslie Powell-Boudreau, who is the Executive Director of Legal Services of North Florida, and Sean McDonald, the CEO and founder of Frontline SMS and a principal at Digital Public, a digital governance consultancy. Thank you all for being with us. Now, Catherine, I wanted to start with you. What is it that we are talking about when we talk about the digital divide? Who is this impacting?
1: Yeah. Well, in the last 20 months, I think we've learned that the digital divide is much more nuanced than simply a question of whether or not an individual has a device. Rather, it's a whole host of issues, um, including lack of access to the internet entirely, lack of ownership or access to a device that connects to the internet, lack of a device that is well-suited for the software they may need to interface with on the internet, Lack of connectivity speeds to make sure the internet is functional, lack of financial means to support and afford a device, as well as the data plans, lack of familiarity with the platform in question, lack of software. Lack of clear processes to figure out how to opt in or opt out of using technology within the court. Perhaps a a simpler way to capture this is if we imagined that all across our country courts built fences around their buildings. And these fences were of varying heights and every person was personally responsible to bring a ladder in order to climb the fence. And so, one, you would have to have a ladder, you would have to have the physical ability to climb up. Somehow you'd have to be able to make the ladder flip over the other side so you could get down. This is, for courts, the reality as we integrate technology into our operations, what we are doing when we're not adequately supporting people.
0: What you're proposing is maybe a little bit broader of a definition than I think people tend to think of when they think of the digital divide, where a person is either living in a rural area without broadband, or they are impoverished, so they don't have the newest technology to be able to access the internet, whether it's a phone or a computer. But what you're telling me is that uh, this could be an individual like my mom, who is middle class, who has an iPhone and a computer, but will call me regularly for tech support, when things don't go as she expected them to. Is that right? We have a broader definition here? Precisely. And then, Sean, you've written a lot about this recently, including a piece this year that was run in the Brookings Institute. And you are pulling the attention on this issue kind of underneath like this large umbrella that Catherine has put forward onto the digital service design specifically. In this piece, you talk about how this has two political effects. So first, I'd appreciate it if you could define the digital service design and then talk about what these effects are.
2: Sure. The main thing is that when all of the lacks that Catherine just described are only requirements in justice services because someone at some point architected the service to make it an important requirement of access. So just like Catherine said, someone sat down and chose to build the fence that we are now trying to sort of throw ladders over. And I think that the important piece is that the people who design services are duty bearers right we have civil procedure for a reason and in a lot of ways in the justice system specifically we haven't really seen what it means to have the kind of equity that we we strive for in civil procedure applied to digital transformation work or digital service design work and then the political outcomes of this are Significant. One, you significantly reduce the number of people who have access to the systems of justice, which has enormous knock on effects for equity, for participation and comfort, for all of the sort of benefits of citizenship and equality that we expect courts to protect. And the other is the systemic cost, which is the sort of lack of adaptation that you would get from high use. Law is a growing interpretive body of knowledge. And when you significantly reduce or bias the flow of people who can pass through it, you get less good interpretation that covers less of what's actually happening.
0: Leslie, I want to bring you into the conversation and get a practical view of how these issues are playing out. You run North Florida Legal Aid, part of the state that has large population centers, but also vast rural areas. And I'm curious, what were you seeing? What were your attorneys experiencing with the Legal Aid clients that they were dealing with?
3: The interesting thing is that legal aid organizations are adding our own technology. I mean, technology is important to increasing access to legal services. And so, you know, we've added online intake. We've added certain more sophisticated telephone intake systems. We're doing things with artificial intelligence when that's available and it makes sense. We're doing guided navigation. We're doing things in the community with computers. We're doing forms that self-represented litigants can use. And that can help support pro bono attorneys. We're we're doing all these things to try to improve access. And then in the rural areas, we're doing virtual consultations and and, and other things. And those things existed pre-COVID. And there are people for whom technology will help them better access. But what we we also know is that there are people who won't. And so we have an interest in legal aid providers to, to opening up as many doors as possible for people to access our services. And technology is one of those doors. So, you know, we work within the community with libraries, with community centers, with churches, with any number of community partners where our prospective clients might come and and need services, and those partners know how to use the technology that we have because we train them in it. We give them tools. We make sure they know how to reach us when there is a a problem or an issue, and we have those, those communications. And so... The courts adding that technology is very much a, a COVID-related response. There has been some conversation about things like electronic service and e-filing. Florida is, for practitioners, everyone is required to e-file already. There's certain protocols and rules that they're supposed to file, and so there has been some movement towards what can we do to get self-represented litigants to do that as well. Thus far, it has been optional. A self-represented litigant can opt into those systems. What we're seeing is that many of them don't understand them. There are family law forms that people can use that are voluminous. They've got to wade through which one to do and which one to use, and so often have to lean on the clerks or a legal aid provider to, to sort through that. Then there become questions about unlicensed practice of law and who can help someone fill out those forms and, and do that within the law. So there's there's lots of questions that have been built around that. But what we're seeing post-COVID, as we sort of hopefully walk away from that, is this push towards now we have the technology, let's have the tsunami wave to take it all in and use all of it right now without training, without help centers and help desks and and other resources that would make it easier for people who aren't connected to legal aid, who aren't connected to one of those partners to figure out how to access these systems and to do it in real time. Nobody goes to the library every day. I mean, some people do, but for the most part, You go there when you think you need to, and and how do you make it accessible when you're not always able to access that email account or the other tool that you would be using? So I think there's some challenges in trying to take what we know the courts can use for technology and make sure that it's actually accessible and not just something that's there for the court's convenience.
0: And within that exploration that you're working on, you recently with uh, SRLN, Uh, the self-represented litigation network that Catherine runs tried to quantify at least an aspect of this. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, the digital divide dashboard and how you came to be a partner in that project?
3: So I will start, but I need Catherine to finish that for me because it is definitely her team's creation. When we were starting to look at the proposed rules that were coming out of our continuity of operations work group that was created in response to the pandemic, you know, we were basically hearing that they didn't have the data to show who this was going to impact, who wouldn't be able to access hearings remotely, or who wasn't going to be able to accept electronic service and other things. And I think we all found that hard to believe. We knew there, there had to be data out there. And while we knew that infrastructure around technology had gotten better because schools had to access technology for kids to do a remote school, but we also knew, and and in our community, they made a school bus a Wi-Fi hotspot and drove it and drove it into some of the poorest neighborhoods, and let the kids access school using that Wi-Fi hotspot because they had no other way to access it. And that was after they'd given them, you know, some sort of a laptop or a Chromebook or something. So, uh, you know, we we reached out to Catherine and said, you know, what are we missing here? And with that, I'm going to hand it to Catherine and talk, let her talk about that, the actual creation of that and why that data that was there and really putting it in an accessible form that we could then translate into where that digital divide existed within communities that otherwise looked like they were fully covered, why that information is so important. But but, but Catherine, I, I know you can fill in those gaps.
1: Yeah, so SRLN has a geospatial group because of the way our country is structured, all justice is local. And so we need to use data to understand what is going on at a local level and who are we serving. On the digital question, um, you know, when we first looked at the data that was out there about five years ago, it just wasn't very good. It was very squishy, and we felt like we couldn't really get a clear picture. When Leslie contacted us, we went back and and looked out at the data, and we use primarily four data sources. There's an FCC reporting that occurs on speed, um, the American Community Survey, and then the National Telecommunications and Information Administration data, which is a collection of both public and private data. And when we went back and looked at this, we saw, wow, now we have really good data. We can get down uh, to the block level of really seeing who in a community is struggling with access to devices, to speed, uh, the cost burden. However, you know, this data is, is locked into data tables and not very accessible and doesn't make much sense to anybody. So my team came up with the idea to make a, a template of a dashboard that would get to right away the high, the high points that courts need to wrap their heads around. You know, the, the total number of people with no Internet, uh, the Black or African-American, Hispanic or Latino or populations or people over 65, people living below poverty and what the average monthly cost of terrestrial broadband is. We put this together in a way to really help um, in the Florida instances, some of the proposals that they had, if, if they were to go through almost overnight, disenfranchised nearly 3 million people. This is based on just data. This is no longer people's anecdotal feel of, you know, oh, some, you know, all my friends have a cell phone, so everybody must have a cell phone. You know, I think that's really whether commercial, governmental, or nonprofit, well designed services require market segmentation who are we serving and what do they need and we now have hard data that tells us that and i think these dashboards you know we've tried to do it in a template way to make them really affordable we can build them out for every state at this at a very superficial level it gives advocates a, a very clear idea of the most vulnerable people negatively impacted and then we allow people to dig in a more kind of user friendly way into these four data sources should there be people on staff that you know want to do further analysis if i could just add one other thing about about this dashboard and the use of data for courts to make decisions and also for all of the providers in the access to justice ecosystem. Ideally, we exhort courts to release their data on case types, zip codes of parties segmented by case types to overlie this on the data we have of the digital divide. If we got that, we would be able to really optimize the delivery of the continuum of services from self-help to full representation and create appropriate access points and supportive services and communities. We'd know exactly who needs what kind of elevated <laughs> assistance and then who is more likely to be able to go on their own. So I think it's it's an exciting time to just have actual objective information to make decisions. Um, these These aren't based on whether you like or dislike a particular population of people. This is just objective data. So I hope that it is very helpful um, to policymakers as they move forward.
0: And since this is not a visual medium for our listeners, if you go to the website that they are talking about, which we'll put a link in our show notes for, what you would see is a map of Florida with these broad swaths of bright red dots on them in the dots indicating the lack of connectivity that Catherine was just talking about. And it's particularly notable in the north part of the state where, where Leslie is working. Uh, Sean, I wanted to bring into discussion about this, this dashboard and just giving utility to the data that was out there is obviously the, the huge step that this particular project But as we've been talking about, the divide isn't merely a question of having internet or not having internet. So I'm curious from your work, your research, what you see out there. Is there another way or are there other data sources that we should be looking at to be able to quantify this to think about the digital divide is perhaps incorrectly named at this point. It's more of like a digital gradient uh, from low access to high access, perhaps, um, as opposed to this being this bifurcation between two different sets of people. Are those knowledge gaps that we're able to quantify at this point, and if so, how?
2: Part of my work has really actually been working against attempts to quantify uh, not sort of proactively, I'm really excited about this dashboard and I think it's a very valuable resource, just to be clear. Uh, a lot of my work at Frontline SMS, was the name of the organization, is a platform that's used to design services to extend usually public services, in some cases legal aid, often in international contexts, by or through text messaging. And while many people or even most people have a phone in the United States, having a phone is not actually useful generalization. To vindicate Jason's mom's tech support calls, I remember opening a relative of mine's laptop, and literally every time they'd access the internet, they'd started a new tab. So we just had to go through and close something 300 tabs just to see the home screen. So there's a huge usage and comfort and confidence design gap. And I think that a lot of what we're looking at is what is the sort of aggregate or measurable, what is the quantifiable or surveillable amount of population served? And I think that another way to look at it is how are legal services providers, how are courts balancing their investments to reach different groups, especially based on the kinds of access, comfort, and confidence, you know, capacity gaps, essentially, that Catherine references. So I deeply empathize with the we'll call it squishiness of connectivity data, particularly when it comes to relying on corporate partners for coverage maps and things like that. There's always been a degree of fungibility in how well served people are. I would almost turn it on its head and ask how the system or how service providers are factoring in digital, you know, digital divide considerations in the way that they're making their own investments toward equity. So, I mean, just a simple, tangible example of that is there are tons of web-based resources out there and for good reason. But if you look at the budget line and who who those services then are, are going to reach and you compare them to the amount invested in engagement with offline populations, I think you might notice some differences. And I think that those differences are really worth interrogating, not because one type of investment is going to provide a magical and perfect equity of service, but budget lines are telling the political story of who we're preferring here. And I think it's very important to kind of frame it, not in a, can we get to the perfect measurement of the problem so that then we may be able to start fixing it. We have lots of very useful data that shows the size and shape of the problem now. I think,
0: I, I think that's a really interesting point and a place I wanted to take the, the conversation, at least for a moment, and Leslie, um, as, as the service provider on uh, this particular podcast today, I'm, I'm curious how you might be complementing the, the, the dashboard that you built with Catherine, with qualitative information you're receiving back from your clients and the communities that you're working with when you are trying to figure out what service will work best?
3: Sure. So the pandemic is just this spotlight on the needs of, of, of our communities. And you know it was one thing for us to take our entire um, service and go remote and have people work from home, but to get Get to a place where clients could do that, and where clients could attend virtual court hearings and understand procedure when there's not a bailiff or someone to say, "Hey, where do I go and what do I do?" um, has been a real challenge. And so, you know, the legal aid programs, at least in Florida, and I'm sure many, many in other parts of the country, really had to think innovatively. How do I get a retainer signed when the client can't get to me? How do I get the settlement signed? How do I, how do I get the documents from them when they can't scan and? they maybe have a photo function on their phone, but they've never actually had to send that and attach it to an email or what are the different things. So we ended up having to undertake a lot of educational effort with clients. We ended up having to convert our conference rooms into virtual hearing rooms and then work on things like the attorney and the client are in the same room, but then there's sound issues because they're sharing the same space. And so now we have to move the client down to another room in the hallway and and how do you then communicate with your client when you're on virtual hearings and those kinds of organic things that happen in a real hearing. And really trying to figure out when someone had no mechanism to, to, to do anything digitally. Um, you know, one, of the, one, one program in Florida uh, out of Jacksonville actually got a corporate lift account so that their clients would be able to, to get to them when, when they couldn't otherwise do that. And, and really trying to find ways to make it easier for um, for us to work with clients, some of this is very old school, very traditional legal aid, but it's something that we were all moving away from and then sort of had to go back to, with the rules as they're coming out. You know, just assessing what we're hearing from clients that I tried to attend my eviction hearing, but I waited for an hour and I never got called, and my data ran out. I didn't understand that my case was going to be the fifth one called and not the first one called, so. I just hung up after that. You know, we hear courts say that they always had phones set up, they always had some other way to to get through. But one, that wasn't always clear to the user. And two, I think there is a big difference when you have a landlord appearing virtually, and you can see them and interact with them as a judge, and you have a tenant who is appearing, and it's just by phone, and you just hear a voice, and you don't get that personal engagement and the impact of what's going to happen with this family if they're evicted. There's a lot lost in those processes. We have modified what we've done. And I think the challenge is if the courts are going to move more towards a technical application of, of how they function, the education of those who would, not, who would not be able to get the ladder and go over the wall is, is so significant that they simply wouldn't access the systems. And I think it's systemically it affects the credibility of the justice system in such a significant way that it may not be something that our communities can come back from. They simply may not try to access it. And the challenge is is most of our clients aren't the ones who are affirmatively filing. They're being brought in as defendants in collections cases and foreclosures and evictions and these these other kinds of cases. So the impact of that long term on credit reports and the ability to get other housing and those sorts of things will be felt um, for you know for that person's entire life and possibly you know we're hearing reports of evictions being filed against minors now so how does that minor then respond to that and not make sure their record doesn't get blemished as well so I don't mean to take that train all the way down the path but but it is that complicated impact and what that can mean to the credibility of the justice system I think is so significant that we just taking advantage of technology now without looking at those consequences is a really dangerous place to be.
2: One of the things that's really interesting about working in international justice systems is that you see how different dependencies and different assumptions play into exactly the dynamic that Leslie's describing where reliance on power infrastructure, for example, places like Texas is becoming less of a given and your phone needs a certain amount of battery charge your you know your ability to participate in a justice system will is now increasingly contingent on your access to electricity she also brought up roads and physical infrastructure you know we talk about the digital divide because it is sort of the latest layer in a lot of ways on top of a stacked set of assumptions about access to infrastructure and what that means about equity both in the in the ability to participate sense which i think Leslie's point about who it is that's bringing cases is a really important one as well. Uh, and, And also, you know, what it means for ongoing assumptions and fragility. And I think that we're starting to see in places where power goes out, where I mean, part of the internet went offline today because two major, you know, backbone providers went down. Now that's a courts problem. All of the problems that we know live in, in these ecosystems or in the fragility of existing infrastructure. I guess thank goodness it's infrastructure week again, you know, are now being imported into justice delivery as a service. And so I think it's it's even beyond any sort of single assumption about whether a tool or an intervention is right, is this broader sense of how much fragility are we importing. And, you know, it is, the exigency of actual service provision that is driving you know, old school solutions that are practical. And so it might be Lyft, but before it was Lyft, it was probably someone in the office who had a car, someone who was around who could go do those things. You know, The, the school bus providing internet access in education ecosystems is the circuit court system of a couple hundred years ago. And what I think that we're, we're starting to really struggle with is that those fixes, those practical workarounds, which are so human-driven and so based on local knowledge and local expertise and local justice, don't have a way to compel flexibility in a broader sense we're not seeing the system necessarily acknowledge or recognize or validate those approaches we're seeing service providers get stuck having to bridge these access and infrastructure gaps with the formality of process that may not be you know fit for exactly the circumstance in which it's being applied and so there is just this huge important relationship between the incredible work that service providers are doing and the system's ability to adapt responsibly or at least thoughtfully in accepting and validating particular approaches.
0: I, I think that's interesting that's kind of where I think as we wrap up where, where I'd like to end and Catherine I'd, I'd like to throw it to you to, to close out the show so, so we just heard from Leslie and Sean about how, about the types of hurdles that exist within these systems and the, the impacts of those hurdles, as well as from Sean, how these uh, concerns are not being taken when it's uh, into consideration when these services are being developed. At this point, I know you've helped Leslie in Florida in regards to their uh, new digitization court modernization rules. You just uh, also supplied comments to California on something very similar what's the thing you think courts need to understand as they begin to think about you know putting into concrete terms all of these digitization efforts that the pandemic brought around like wh- where, where do you think that you can help them overcome these assumptions that they're making
1: first off i just have to say i love how sean frames this about services and and design you know the service design and i think question we need to get courts to think about are, you know, what are the most important design steps that they can take? The fact that this external infrastructure issue is becoming a court issue is giving us a once in a generation opportunity to really change the power imbalances within the system. So I find it actually a really exciting time. Um, We've also submitted comments in Michigan and built a dashboard for them and we're just watching for these comments and we'll submit in as many states as we can. The big opportunity on the table for us is to get courts to create integrated informed consent procedures so that a user is making informed consent about how they appear, when they appear, the conditions they appear under. And in doing that, we really change the the power imbalance between courts and individuals. The courts are supposed to serve the communities in which they are located. It is not supposed to be an institution of oppression. In doing that, we can also create rules that ensure parties aren't prejudiced by tech failures, that we have HIPAA-like compliance secure portals, that there is a fully refreshed analysis of how to balance privacy of parties and witnesses with notions of why we need open courts, what does that really mean, and actively working with community partners to ensure adequate access points and supports for the poor and vulnerable. There is no reason one needs to just go to the courthouse, right? I mean, there are ways that that you should be able to take care of your justice needs, even in your community, if if you need to go to an access point. Tech is only as good as it is supported by humans. We just have this amazing opportunity in design, and I'm really grateful to, to be able to talk with Sean and Leslie and you about this. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Catherine. And I, that idea of integrated informed consent procedures or or HIPAA-like privacy protections for users within the courts, I think is a really interesting issue and and not one that's getting enough coverage. So hopefully in the not too distant future, we can have you all back to discuss that again on Talk Justice. So with that, I'd like to thank Sean, Leslie, and Catherine for being with us on the show today. For links to what we discussed, check out our show notes. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jason Taché. For everyone here at Talk Justice, thank you for listening. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.